Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, we're travelling through time with award-winning author John Ray in his latest novel, The Lost Time Accident. John Ray is the author of The Right Hand of Sleep, which won a Whiting Writer's Award, Canaan's Tongue, and the critically acclaimed Lowboy. He was chosen as one of Granter's Best Young American Novelist in 2007, and his latest novel, which we're going to be talking about today, is The Lost Time Accident. John, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me. So, summarise for us what The Lost Time Accident is about. What's the story? Well, it's um, narrated by a guy named Waldy Tolliver, who's sort of our de facto hero. Um, He's a bit of a bumbler and uh, somewhat deluded. But he may or may not be existing in a kind of odd isolation or um, banishment from the flow of time. He's convinced that a series of traumatic events have essentially ejected him from uh, the time stream and that he has time to write an account of his life and uh, specifically of uh, his love life because time just simply isn't passing for him. He's, he's writing it as a kind of love letter to a woman known only as Mrs. Haven in the book with whom he had sort of a doomed, adulterous affair and who uh, has essentially ended the affair and is pretending that it never happened. So he's tr- sort of trying to testify to what he sees as the great love of his life and also to tell the story of his very eccentric family, about a 100 years in the life of this family, who all seem to believe in one way or another and for various reasons, that they have a privileged sort of insight into the way time works and to some degree even an influence over the way it moves. You've written four novels, so this is the fourth, and all four of your novels are different in terms of subject matter, in terms of style, but are there sort of preoccupations or or themes across, across the four that are common things that preoccupy you? It's funny, you know, it's not something that I, I think about very often. I, I usually just, when I'm starting something new, go in a direction that holds interest for me at the time. And I'm often reacting against the book that I've just finished because it can't speak for other writers, but uh, if I spend four or five or, in this case, seven years writing a book, I just want to do something as different as possible with, you know, the next chunk of mm-hmm. my life. 
But friends and some reviewers have pointed out that there, there are definitely some preoccupations. I think every writer has certain preoccupations or even obsessions that he or she returns to again and again, whether they realize it consciously or not, really. I've noticed that my books tend to go pretty deep into questions of subjectivity, and my, my protagonists tend to be fairly alienated from sort of the mainstream of society and to have a very odd, idiosyncratic, highly subjective take on themselves and on the world. They're not people who necessarily subscribe to consensus reality to a very large degree. Seven years it yeah. took to write this. I mean, what does that actually mean? Oh, it means a lot of pain. A lot of pain, a lot of suffering, a lot of drudgery, a lot of uh, self-doubt, and um, a lot of crumpled balls of paper lying around on the ground, you know. I mean, there were times, particularly in the middle of, of working on this novel, when I really felt like some kind of Hollywood cliché of a novelist, you know, kind of sitting the way Hollywood will always show the, the writer kind of staring angrily at the typewriter and then ripping out the paper and crumpling it and throwing it in the corner and taking a shot of absinthe, you know. I was basically exactly like that for a while, minus the absinthe, which is hard to come by in the U.S. And you must have got absolutely sick to death of it during yes. that time. Absolutely, utterly sick to death of it. I used to describe it to people as sort of like telling the same joke over and over, you know. I mean, I always thought that must be very hard for comedians, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you come up with a joke, it's almost as good as it can be. Then you work on it, you tinker with the joke. But the problem is that no one can find a joke funny after they've heard it five times, let alone 50 times in a row. So that's kind of the hell of revising a book to me. I would just spend years of my life wondering whether the joke was even funny. When did you start writing? I mean, in general, not, this, not seven years ago. I had a, a number of stops and starts. I mean, in my sort of grammar school days... I think I started fairly early. Uh, I was one of those kids who was obsessed with Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings. And uh, somewhere in my mother's house, there's an early attempt at a kind of version of The Hobbit. It, mm -hmm. it was really just such a one-to-one ripoff of The Hobbit, really, to be honest. You know, it featured tiny little people who, they weren't called hobbits, they were called pips or something like that and, and I mean it's just really it's it's even now I feel embarrassed to even think about it I can't believe I'm talking about it then I sort of hit a wall uh, right before I began high school so maybe when I was about 11 or 12 I was trying to write a sort of an Eric Ambler style kind of thriller and um, I showed it to my parents I remember uh, thinking that you know I mean I hadn't I'd written maybe 10 pages and I showed them to my parents, and they were very supportive and tried to be encouraging. The first line of the book I still remember was, uh, God, what was it? It's embarrassing to say this, too. It was, Old Man Withers was without question the most ornery old fart in the village. <laughs> and uh, Terry Pratchett doesn't want to be proud of that. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, and my parents said, you know, John, this is really very promising and how great that you're trying to write this book. Are you sure you want to use the word fart in the first sentence of your novel? And somehow this response meant to me that I just wasn't going to be taken seriously as an artist. Mm -hmm. The grown-ups weren't taking me seriously. And that kind of devastated me. And as soon as I realized that it was essentially impossible that as a 12-year-old... I could ever write something that people would actually take seriously rather than sort of patronizingly appreciate. I just stopped writing completely for almost 10 years. Mm -hmm. 
I just couldn't, it was an unbearable thought that people were kind of just not going to give me a chance to be taken seriously. Of course, I didn't deserve to be taken seriously. It was it was an absolute crap book that I was writing. But then it, eventually, you know, I went to university and slowly kind of, I felt at university that we were at an age at which if we wrote poetry, for example, that might actually be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. Somehow you can write poetry at age 20 and you may actually be, the adults might accept you into into their community of people worth paying attention to. But novels, not maybe not quite. So I started out writing poetry then, these sort of little prose, paragraph, poem-like things. And eventually I built up the courage to try again. And um, I think I was about 26 when I seriously began writing my first book. And this book, and it concerns time travel, sort of pseudoscience. There's a pulp science fiction writer in it who we'll talk about later on. So now you have got a chance to write about that stuff that preoccupied you as a kid, I guess. That's true, that's true. I mean, for me, a large part of the fun of writing this book... Aside from the fact that it is, I think of it as kind of a serious comedy, uh, almost in the in the sort of Saul Bellow vein. He had this idea of serious fun that informed a lot of his great books like The Adventures of Augie March. But also, this book is, in a sense, a science fiction novel. It sort of both isn't and isn't. It was, first of all, a true privilege to sort of go back to uh, the fantasy novels and the science fiction novels that really, really formed my sensibility as a writer and made me want to write in the first place. You know, I think the first thing I ever wrote was a short story about scientists who were trying to uh, explore some asteroid belt and met with a grisly end. So, you know, that gave me tremendous pleasure. It was also a bit of a kind of awakening for me because I realized that I had been completely unconsciously assuming that especially the classic kind of space opera genres of science fiction were so rigid in their kind of orthodoxy and the rules of of engagement that it would actually if one understood those rules uh be quite easy to write mm-hmm. turns out it's incredibly difficult to do it well as it is to do anything well and any any type of of fiction ha- comes with its own challenges and uh it was rather chastening and took me years to feel that I could do right by even a kind of postmodern engagement with the genre of space opera. It was very, very fun for me to write the little snippets of science fiction that appear in the book as examples of the narrator's father's work as a sci-fi mm-hmm. author. Really, the only way that I could do it was to make him kind of a mediocre sci-fi yeah. author. I mean, that's part of the fun of him. But then it must be harder in some ways to write bad science fiction than it is for a writer like yourself to write good science fiction. No, writing good science fiction is, for me, far more difficult. You know, it's it was incredibly pleasurable, first of all, to write this kind of overblown, florid, kind of essentially a parody of the science fiction that I loved so much as mm-hmm. a kid. I mean, I like to think of it as a very loving parody, but... Um, in a way, it was kind of like writing the stories I wished I could have written as a 13-year-old, except also very dirty and pornographic mm-hmm. because uh, the character of, uh, of Orson Tolliver in, in the book, who's the science fiction author, uh, he's not just a writer of science fiction. He's not just a writer of kind of flagrantly bad science fiction, but he's a writer of flagrantly bad, very dirty science fiction which, of course, was also very fun to write. And what is it, let's talk about time, about writing about 
time because Waldi, as you said, possibly is marooned outside of time and he believes that his family uniquely are, are cursed by time. But of course, as Mrs. Haven says, we're all cursed by time. Yeah, yeah. Well, that is, that's, that's another kind of vein of humour in the book. And it's also a melancholy thing. On, on a certain level, the book is, is very much preoccupied with these sort of science fiction tropes about time travel and various completely overblown and, and, and even grotesque theories about the nature of time and how we might escape time and how we might slow time down. And I really wanted to kind of pack as many different and in a way competing theories and philosophies of time into the book as possible. Mm-hmm. But also there's just, of course, the melancholy truth that none of us can actually arrest the flow of time and that even though theoretically, from a mathematical point of view, from a physics point of view, time could just as easily run backwards as forwards, we, of course, are very firmly lodged in a forward-moving arrow of time, Mm -hmm. and there's not that much we can do about it, although we try very hard to uh, slow things down or escape from time, you know. I mean, one could view recreational drug use, one could, one could view sex as a way of escaping from time. I mean, these, these various things that we do and that we profoundly enjoy often involve the illusion or the sensation that, that time has stopped, however briefly. I'm J. Courtney Sullivan. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. You mentioned that this is considered a, a sort of serious comic novel, and I mean, while I guess it's, I mean, it's a, it's a myth really to think of something that's comic, that's funny, as automatically not serious. The two things can sort of cohabit, but you, you do obviously in this book cover some of the, you know, the worst instances of the history of the twentieth century. Yeah, how was that trying to sort of strike that balance? I guess. Well, there's a way in which I, th- I think it was Hannah Arendt who said at one point that some things are so unbearable to think about that the only way we can access them is through comedy through humor or at least accompanied by a certain ability to laugh i mean there are people who believe that laughter evolved directly out of the fact that they were unbearable things that couldn't be processed any other way and of course nowadays we live in a culture in which black comedy is probably the dominant form and it could be argued that there is no other form you know, that even slapstick, which we think of as the most innocent form of comedy, is on some level based on mishap and accident and, and potential injury even. So I, to my own surprise, found the comic humorous aspect of what I was trying to do in the book to be of great help in talking about the Holocaust, for example, and various other uh, dreadful things that we as a species have uh, done to ourselves in the course of the 20th century. Uh, I've tried to sort of take on these topics before. My first novel was a very sort of sober-minded take on the kind of beginnings of of the Third Reich in Central Europe, but uh, I had a much easier time somehow writing about it uh, in a way that sort of allowed for a certain degree of of humor, and uh, no matter how black that humor might be. And also also, uh, science fiction and fantasy, you know? There are ways in which those two genres are, are uniquely suited to deal with enormous and sometimes terrifying questions of history and, and, and philosophy. I mean, there's probably no greater genre for sort of novels of ideas than, than science fiction is. Mm-hmm. And again, the comic novel. I mean, from my almost look upon the, the idea of the comic novel with some sort of snobbery, but like, you know, regardless of whether you're writing about 
comedy about the Holocaust or whatever. Clearly, <laughs> it took you seven years to write this. Writing comic fiction is not an easy thing to do, right? Not at all. Not at all. And uh, it's not merely a question of writing in an amusing way or managing to somehow embed good jokes in, in your prose. I mean, there are a great many comic novels that begin wonderfully within, you know, that are incredibly funny, where you're laughing literally every second sentence. <laughs> but you get a few chapters in and it begins to cloy. And uh, somehow there isn't enough tension or enough forward momentum uh, that's, this has happened to me many times reading comic novels of a certain type that, uh, you know, you get a few chapters in and you feel as though, OK, that's that's enough. I understand. I've I've laughed quite a bit. And but I don't necessarily need to find out what happens next or get to the end of the book. So I found it to be an in- very, very difficult to to strike the right tone that was playful, that was often funny, but that still gave pride of place in a way to themes and topics and ideas that have real weight. I mean, in a way, I realized that it had to both be a funny book and a profoundly sad book at the same time. And that in, to some degree, it's, it's that sense of sadness and tragedy that, that keeps us reading many books that we read through to the end. Because, of course, one has to feel that there's something truly at stake and truly at risk. And we're hoping that these characters that we've come to feel a certain affection for actually make it through all of their travails. I want to move us on to look at the book through the the characters, through the main characters in it, but just before we do, before we get on to that, tell me about this title. Let's talk about where the title came from. The entire novel actually started with the title. I was, um, at the time that I got the original idea, it was quite a long time ago, it was more than a decade ago, uh, and I was working on my first novel. I was living in New York City, but I had had a run of really bad luck. I'd been fired from my job, kicked out of my sublet, dumped by my girlfriend, and I'd kind of retreated underground, literally, to um, a music rehearsal space that a band I was playing in shared with a bunch of other people to sort of lick my wounds. And the the advantage was that it was rent-free. So you were living there? I lived in a tent in this subterranean practice space under the Brooklyn Bridge on the Brooklyn side for a year and a half. Yeah, it was. It turned out to be quite comfortable. I set things up nicely for myself. Uh, there wasn't much in the way of natural light or or heat even. And I had to. I sort of had to go to the public library to bathe. It was. A, it's, a, it's a sordid tale that I won't go into here. But I would spend my nights kind of wandering this strange industrial kind of abandoned neighborhood that I was living in at the time. And one night I rounded the corner and and suddenly before me was the entrance to this enormous power generating station right on the East River in New York City. And um, above the gate to the power station was a sign that said 000624 hours without a lost time accident. And I had no idea what that meant. But the phrase, just that combination of words, lost time accident, immediately struck me as kind of humming with with all sorts of potential and and, uh, these odd reverberations and associations. And it it struck me as a little scrap of poetry somehow. And over the years that followed, I would think of it again and again and try to puzzle out what that might mean. For some reason, I never actually did any research to find out. I, I know now what it means, but I just remember thinking, you know, my God, that phrase could apply to so many aspects of the human experience, you know. What isn't a lost time accident? You know, and there's even a, a character in the book at one point who says uh, death itself is the ultimate lost time accident. And eventually, a whole kind of 
narrative grew out of that central mystery and the question of what could this phrase mean, the lost time accidents. And many of the characters in the novel are, in fact, trying to f- solve that riddle. They're, at the beginning of the book, there's a the great-grandfather uh, who's kind of considered to be this mad genius um, who was working on an attempt to explain uh, the very phenomena that Einstein then, through relativity, did succeed in explaining, dies very suddenly and leaves behind a pile of notes which are completely unintelligible, but in which this phrase, the lost time accidents, is repeated. And it takes on this kind of enigmatic, quasi-religious importance for his children and his children's children, and indeed the whole family that's, that's chronicled in the novel. And everyone's trying to solve this mystery of what, what this phrase could mean. So really, I just took my own obsession and my own preoccupation and distributed it kind of evenly among a number of characters in the book, which is, which is a good way to drive a narrative forward. You know, your characters have to be obsessed by the very things that you are, I think. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny, and today I'm talking to John Ray, and we're talking about his book, The Lost Time Accidents. And John, I want to look at some of the characters in the book a bit more closely now, and we'll start with Waldy, who, as we've established, is potentially outside of the stream of time. He narrates the book 
really he's relating the story of what's going on with him and his history to his great love, Mrs. Haven. But I think before we talk about Waldy himself, what's interesting as well about his position is he's also representing, because he's outside of the, the book, he's commenting on it with almost an authorial voice. So he is basically you, I guess, being able to comment on events that are happening yeah. in the story. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I'm not even sure how that all evolved or developed, but um, it ended up being actually quite fun for me to have a narrator who was both, in certain points of the book, uh, very much the hero and the protagonist and the actor in the in the sort of unfolding plot line, but also the author of the book. I've never done that before. You know, he believes himself to be exiled from the flow of time. He's taking advantage of that opportunity to essentially write an accounting both of himself and of all the factors that conspired to bring him and his great love together. He's making a case for their love. He's hoping to win her back. But he's also sort of a, and at times rather kind of self-satisfied author, you know, and and, uh, I had some fun with that. He's kind of learning to write the book as the book progresses. Mm -hmm. In some ways, he's surprised by his own authorial decisions and stylistic preferences as things go on. So um, I've never really thought about that. I mean, in a way, it's a kind of funhouse mirror self-portrait of uh, this somewhat bumbling author at work. Well, we'll come back to Waldy. I want to talk about him through his relatives, which he tells the story of his family. Going back to his his great-grandfather, who is Ottokar, He's the one that's come up with this sort of great theory, this great revelation. Yeah. And then immediately as he has this eureka moment, he's he's run over by a car. By a very slow moving. By a very slow moving car. One of the first cars. (laughs) Tell us something about his theory, this idea that time is not an arrow but is like spheres. Yeah. Tell us something about that. Well, it's um, not unrelated to aspects of the theory of relativity, which, of course, comes along and kind of completely eclipses this half-baked and half-crazy theory that our kind of narrator's great-grandfather came up with shortly before his death. And indeed, throughout the book, Einstein is kind of the great nemesis and is (laughs) referred to dismissively as the patent clerk throughout. They never, as a family, never speak Einstein's name. But the theory itself is essentially that, in the same way that the world appears flat to to us at any given point, that our notion of time as essentially moving in a a more or less straight arrow, trending from the past into the future, that that is in fact really essentially a function of our limited perspective, and that just as the Earth is round, it is a sphere. Time itself is following a, a trajectory that is essentially spherical in nature, not just circular in nature, but spherical. And uh, it goes into some some very, very crackpot and crazy places. But truthfully, as I did research for this novel, as many people are aware, physics in the 20th century, you know, beginning at the very latest with relativity, and certainly once we enter the realm of quantum physics, goes into some incredibly bizarre and insane territory, and yet apparently is, is accurate and true. So in the same way that mainstream physics in the 20th century repeatedly flew in the face of of common sense and uh, encountered a lot of resistance for that very reason. So too do the theories of um, the various crackpot theorists and and, uh, self-appointed scientific geniuses in the book uh, fly in the face of common sense and convention. And yet, 
they may just possibly potentially be true because stranger things are in fact accepted currently by science you must have had a, a lot of fun coming up with this theory. What sort of what sort of things did you research into that were like? I mean, I don't mean obviously the the real stuff, but there is a lot of crackpot science out there. There's a lot of crackpot science, which is incredibly entertaining. But you actually have to have a very advanced degree nowadays to, to know which to, is which. To tell the difference <laughs> between crackpot theories and theories that actually hold some sort of scientific water. That was fascinating to me, mm-hmm. to realize just how speculative everything has become. And uh, essentially, if it can be proved mathematically, it's accepted as accurate. When, in fact, many of these things can never be proved in any other manner. So you're, you're really dealing with the world of of theory, and it all seems incredibly speculative. And yet there are things that have been proven that are so hard to accept. You know, and one example I often use is uh, an experiment that was carried out in the early second half of the 20th century, in which, in accordance with relativity, it was theorized that the speed at which time is perceived to move is directly related to the frequency of light. Time and light are inextricably linked in certain ways, and essentially the distance between the peaks of light waves is directly correlated to how quickly time passes. Now, as light passes through the Earth's atmosphere, it loses energy, its frequency decreases, and the distance between the peaks of its waves increases, which means that theoretically, Time is, in fact, moving more rapidly mm-hmm. at the top of a mountain, for example, than it is in a deep valley. And this was actually then empirically tested simply by building a tower with two extremely sensitive atomic clocks, one at the top of the tower and one at the bottom. It wasn't even a particularly tall tower. And sure enough, they found that time was moving very slightly more quickly at the top of the tower than it was at the base of the tower. This is something that we deal with every day without realizing it's something that GPS, for example, and anything involving satellites has to factor Mm -hmm. into its equation. So Einstein's theory of relativity is is absolutely crucial and everything that came after to things we take for granted, like cell phones, for example. And there were just dozens of things like that that I encountered that uh, really required me to suspend my disbelief and re-examine what common sense even means. Uh, which, of course, is incredibly fertile and delightful ground for a novelist. You know, once you enter these realms of, of the kind of unreal, or where almost anything seems possible, it really just opens the main hatch of the imagination, and you can go anywhere you want to. Tell us something about the family. They're quite well-to-do at this point, because there's this, what I thought was just a really delicious detail, which is they're, like, so petty bourgeois. They're, they're well-to-do because they're Moravia's biggest pickle manufacturer. Yes. Which is so great. Yeah, yeah. That's such a nice touch. I, I'm not... I just, I just find pickling amusing. <laughs> the entire pickling industry is something that I take pleasure Somebody in. Somebody has to do it. Yeah, you know, the, the uh, CIA in the United States, for God knows what reason, at some point did an extensive amount of research into humor and comedy. And among other things, they compiled an extremely lengthy list of inherently funny words. And pickle was very near the top (laughs) of the list. It was just simply a word that, for whatever reason, was found to be inherently funny. Is it the K sound? I have no idea what it is. It's it's just not a dignified word, Mm -hmm. for whatever reason. And... um, Uh, Yeah, I very much enjoyed... The idea was that the family really were, as you said, 
petit bourgeois uh, to the extreme. And it was, uh, the novel begins right at the turn of the century, which was, of course, the golden age of the mm-hmm. bourgeois, you know, class when they really came and had come into their own and, and uh, were sort of calling the shots in a way. And um, the kind of self-satisfaction and, and preening aspect of, of a kind of small town bigwig was very much part of the fun of, of creating the character of Adokar, who... Um, who then, of course, anoints himself a, a physics genius and, and uh, conducts all sorts of potentially pointless but potentially brilliant research. And that's the big question that, that I hope the reader will also allow him or herself to ask is, you know, is there anything behind this research? Could it have been in any way accurate or, or, or important? And um, I kind of want the, the entire book to be to be playing with that question. I, I, I like to, the idea of going back and forth, you know, from episode to episode. There are moments in the book in which it all seems to be stuff and nonsense, but then other moments when perhaps the book is presenting it as true. In the universe of the book, perhaps time travel is possible. So uh, that was, you know, that was quite fun. I'm Tom Barbash, and you're listening to Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. One of the reasons why that theory is so enigmatic is because only excerpts of it are left. When he's when he's run over, certain of his notes have disappeared. Yeah. And his two sons, Casper and Voldemort, who are... Well, they're different, aren't they? Let's yeah. talk about those two. They're both very odd in their own way uh, and very, very distinct from one another. In a way, I kind of thought of them as so different from one another that they kind of together form one whole well-developed personality. (laughs) You know, they fit together like puzzle pieces. But uh, they really are the first members of the family to take their father's work seriously and then after his death try try to solve the riddle. So they end up traveling from this small town in what's now the Czech Republic where they were, you know, pickle makers to Vienna to study physics at the university, specifically to kind of reconnect with their dead father and solve the riddle of his legacy. Then, as soon as they arrive in Vienna, their lives start to diverge and they they end up pursuing very different courses. One of them marries the Jewish daughter of his mentor at the university, uh, and the other, in part due to anti-Semitism brought on by Einstein's complete erasure of their father's work through the theory of relativity, becomes ever more troubled and drifts ever farther into some very sordid and eventually uh, fascist company in Vienna, and ultimately becomes the great villain of the novel Mm -hmm. and a sort of legendary figure known as the Black Timekeeper who uh, conducted a series of extremely uh, disturbing experiments on prisoners in a uh, concentration camp in Poland. So that's kind of uh, the darkest permutation of this belief in what may be a completely uh, nonsensical and misguided attempt to understand and influence the flow of time. And I thought that was, although, you know, we don't want to go into too much detail about what happens in the story, obviously, but I think, you know, that idea that the Nazis were sort of experimenting with not just the occult as well, but, you know, like weird science and how that's used by that sort of regime, I think is is an interesting theme of the book. 
Well, it's a fascinating element of history also. I mean, the fact that the Nazis, who in so many ways were so systematic and so rational, uh, which is a huge part of the kind of horror of the Nazi regime and of the final solution, that they at the same time were also so deeply invested in the occult, as you say, and in astrology and in all sorts of completely bizarre and and sort of quasi-mystical pursuits has always has always been fascinating to me. I mean it's so it's so grotesque and so sort of preposterous and unlikely seeming. Mm-hmm. And of course it's obviously been the raw material for so many uh, different bizarre films and and treatments and and so on. But um somehow the idea that there was also this element of this kind of covetousness over uh, some kind of influence over over the over time. Uh, was an aspect that I hadn't ever encountered in all of the many, you know, certainly a great deal has been written about the Nazis and in which the Nazis feature as these larger-than-life villains. I mm-hmm. mean, they're such, they're such juicy raw material, it's very hard to resist. But to take that kind of aspect of this sort of secret research facility in which we often hear about Werner von Braun and the development of the rocket which led to the American space program and all these things. But somehow the idea that parallel to these um, pioneering efforts in the direction of space travel, there might also have been efforts in the direction of time travel seemed very fun to me and interesting to explore. Let's talk a little bit now at this point about um, the use of historical figures because like Himmler is one of the, the, the characters that features in this book and you've already talked about the patent clerk yeah. and um, Gustav Klimt is a character and there, there are various, all the way through the book there are various historical figures yeah. how does that work, trying to weave in those people into a fictional narrative? Well it's very fun to do and um, of course it can be very useful when you're trying to represent what people thought and felt and sort of the sensibility of a given era. In almost a shortcut in, in doing that and making that vivid for the reader can be to employ figures from history that they mm-hmm. may be familiar with. You know, If you want to give a sense of what the kind of artistic demimonde in uh, turn of the century of Vienna might have been like, if you bring in Gustav Klimt, this kind of grotesque bear-like figure who, who walks around in a smock and, and preaches free love and practices it too whenever he gets a chance, you know, that's, that's, that's wonderfully useful. It's also a very engaging and enjoyable challenge to try and sort of seamlessly deploy uh, very real personalities in an entirely fictional and artificial environment and not have those two things clash in a kind of matter and antimatter way. So, you know, many things that I think I do in this novel were a means of kind of keeping it entertaining and fun and challenging for myself, Mm -hmm. you know. I I really think that there's no shortcut to writing a book that's fun for the reader unless you are having a really good time writing it. That brings us on nicely to Casper's twin daughters, Waldi's Zahn. What's the second one? Gentian and... And Encyon. It's just the German... It's basically the same name. It's the same name. They're both names for for a flower. One is the English version Mm -hmm. and one is the German version. And because they're these these odd twins... Mm -hmm. It seemed appropriate somehow, and through them you get to you know, sort of play with the nineteen sixties New York Demi Monde as well. Yeah, Let's that's right. Talk about that sort of uh, that scene for a moment. I've always wanted to write about Manhattan and New York City in general in the sixties and seventies, and the incredible sort of social and cultural ferment that was happening at that time, and also the odd fact that in this kind of Demi Monde and in this sort of partying kind of 
environment of this, particularly the 70s in Manhattan, you know, the era of uh, Studio 54 mm -hmm. and disco and all of that, you had these incredible combinations at parties and at clubs where you would have a member of the Black Panther Party and David Bowie, and then also William F. Buckley or some right-wing pundit, all kind of putting their differences aside and just, you know, partying together and maybe doing cocaine in the bathroom. You know, God knows what they were doing. And that's something you certainly don't have in America of the present day, this kind of cross-pollination really spanning the entire political and social spectrum. Things have kind of filtered out more and become more segregated again. So I really just decided that these characters, these eccentric twin sisters who live in Harlem in that time, would just start to have parties, just enormous parties, dinner parties, in which I was able to bring in all sorts of incredibly incongruous people and bring them together. And again, it was just sort of, in a way, I was kind of just dreaming up parties that I would have liked to have gone to and just imagining them. And, and uh, you know, it's maybe cold comfort that I wasn't invited, but it's the next best thing. Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny, and I'm talking to John Ray about his latest novel, which is The Lost Time Accidents. And, John, I want to look at, well, perhaps just one other character from the book, which is Waldy's father, Orson, uh, who's the pulp sci fi writer. And to give you his full name, Orson Card Tolliver, which is not very subtle. No, I know. But um, um, he writes pulp sci fi, which you have great fun recreating in this book, and it's really great fun. But perhaps even more importantly, out of his sci-fi, Mrs. Haven, who Waldy has the affair with, her husband invents a call to church, the United Church of Synchronology, which again is like a not very <laughs> subtle <laughs> take on Scientology or similar similar yeah. religions. Let's talk about that cult for a moment. Well, it's impossible, I think. Maybe in general, it's impossible not to be fascinated by Scientology. But certainly as a writer, as a novelist, it's even more impossible not to be almost obsessed by it because it truly was perhaps almost the only example of a novelist, in this mm -hmm. case L. Ron Hubbard, having an enormous impact on the actual world. You know, it's sort of a great counter to all the people who claim that novels are just made up nonsense that mm -hmm. have no relevance. I mean, this is the most, talk about lack of subtlety. I mean, this is the most blatant and blunt example of an author, and frankly not a particularly good author of science fiction, actually causing something to, to manifest in the real world that even his wildest science fiction, you know, might not have predicted. It's just so amazing to me. I mean, I've been working on this novel for so long that when I began it, 
the wonderful book about Scientology, uh, Going Clear, mm-hmm. that came out a few years ago, and of course the film The Master by P.T. Anderson. None of those were really part of the sort of cultural landscape. There was a time when I intended the novel to cleave far more closely to the actual uh, Church of Scientology and to be to be much closer to that. Fortunately, I eventually decided to move rather far away from it. I mean, other than the fact that it's a flourishing and somewhat ominous cult that develops out of somewhat preposterous work of science fiction. There's almost no direct correlation between, uh, between synchronology and Scientology as it exists today. And frankly, I think Scientology is even more preposterous than the cult that I've invented in my novel. Well, I'm just interrupting and, and, and stepping away from the book itself for a moment just to talk about how fascinating that stuff is. Yeah. Of course, L. Ron Hubbard, his wife ran away with Jack Parsons, yeah. who was you know this Satanist who worked for NASA, who, of course, was obviously involved in the fact that we'd brought Nazis over to work yes. on, on the rocket programmes. And one of these things, are, this weird science of the Nazis and the Scientologists, there is a link there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's not for nothing that the recurring motif in The Lost Time Accidents is the Mobius Strip, mm-hmm. where everything is sort of, everything is kind of folded into itself and, and flowing into the next thing. And, um, you know, I mean, that's something that Thomas Pynchon sort of uh, captures so brilliantly in, in, in a number of his novels that, you know, if you go deeply enough in any direction in, in sort of contemporary American culture, you'll come out, you'll go through a wormhole and you'll come out somewhere very different, but realize that things are completely, intimately deep deeply connected, you know. It's a bit like the kind of physics thought experiment of an extremely powerful spaceship going far enough in a certain direction and eventually returning to the spot that it began from. That that idea of, of what infinity might mean, that it's not actually boundless, but rather involuted and always returning to itself. That's sort of what contemporary culture and society seems like to me. We haven't talked much about Mrs. Haven, so so perhaps we should before we finish on the characters. Yeah, um, she's Waldy's great love, who he's he's had this brief affair with. Um, let's talk about where she comes from. I've seen you write elsewhere that she's almost based on your great love as well. Would that be accurate? Well, she's really she's based on my great love in the sense of the great love that I kind of fantasize Indeed, about in yeah. my head. She's sadly not based on anyone that no. I've actually been involved with. But um, she kind of has to be this incredibly alluring, seductive figure because the desire for her and the loss of her is really the primary engine that drives all of the, the longing and the uh, various motivations of our hero in the book. And I took great pleasure in trying to create the sort of most charming and funniest and uh, sexiest woman that I could imagine. She does always remain a kind of symbol to him in a way more than, than a person that he ever truly knows, which of course is what makes her ultimate rejection of him and his misguided love for her kind of intelligible and understandable. I mean, he his relationship to this woman was doomed because he idealized her so intensely that he never really saw her for the person that she was. I wanted to talk a bit about researching the time periods that you talk about. They're so brilliantly evoked, and particularly, I thought, the anti-Semitic Vienna. 
And then I find out that you're actually, you know, you're an Austrian-American, part Austrian. Yeah. How much of this is out of your own background? Obviously, hopefully not, uh, hopefully not Voldemort. No, there was a time when I, when I was hoping to write a novel that would be a sort of fictional chronicling of the Austrian half of my family, my mother's side. But the truth is, my Austrian family were just, just too boring. Their lives were, were, you know, fairly uneventful. I come from a long line of bakers. And, uh, you know, bread is a very important aspect of the mm-hmm. human experience. But it doesn't make for the most thrilling fiction. Well, so, nobody would have thought pickles would have. Right, I know, that's true, that's true. No, somehow pickles are inherently more interesting than, than breakfast rolls. I'm not sure why. But... Um, I think like many Europeans and perhaps Austrians in particular, my mother's family is very historically conscious and sort of obsessed with not only family history, but also the various eras of... And I think the Viennese also are just particularly invested in their glory days Mm -hmm. of the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th. Uh, And in many ways, the city has never recovered culturally and socially from the losses that were suffered during the Second World War and the First World War, too, to some degree. So Viennese are just, in general, kind of always sort of, in a way, reliving and recreating this turn-of-the-century era of Vienna. So it's very much alive for them. Uh, So it's not a coincidence that I chose to set some of the most pivotal moments of the book in this time period in which Vienna really was one of the great cities of the world, but also a time period that I felt almost at home in, in a way. I've just been reminded of the the moment where one of Casper's daughters finds his medal. Yeah. And says, from the First World War, and says, what's this? And can you remember how he describes it? Yeah, I think um, the medal itself is in the shape of a pegasus. And his young daughter is asking him what this thing is. She neither knows what a medal is, nor does she know what a pegasus is. And uh, his answer to her after having been through this calamitous and to him deeply tragic and pointless conflict in the First World War is to say, it's a pegasus, darling. It's an imaginary animal. Your father received it as a present from an imaginary gentleman for fighting an imaginary war which I think is uh, how a lot of veterans of the First World War in Austria and also Germany, I think, uh, felt about the entire conflict. It had a dreamlike quality, and the entire world that they lost seemed to them often like a sort of somewhat faded and melancholy dream that they had. The book's out on the 2nd of June here in the UK, but it's been out in the US for a while. How have you? How's it been received? It's been received very well. I was actually rather pleasantly surprised by how generous the critics were. It's such a bizarre book. It's. I, I thought it would be far more polarizing than it was. I think it was... Um, I think it was Joe Strummer who, describing his own music, said, half the people like it, half the people hate it, and that's what makes it art. You know, this kind of punk rock idea of things that that you're not trying to please everybody. But in general, uh, the critics have been very kind to it and and really have, have sort of understood what I was trying to do, that I was trying to write a big, rollicking, enormous novel that was so fun and so playful with its subject matter that it didn't feel long at all. Yeah, I mean, you know, knock on wood, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about it. And what's next? I actually have been working very quickly and effectively on a, on a short book after, you know, this, these seven years. I think I had a, I built up a real head of steam. And uh, I've, I've been working on a short novel that follows the experiences of 
a teenage American recruit to militant Islam and her experiences in traveling to Pakistan and Afghanistan in the period right before 9-11 and the attack on the World Trade Towers. So again, a completely different subject matter. Yeah, well, I wouldn't want to start this one over from scratch. <laughs> I'm Emma-Jane Unsworth. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Well, that's it from me, but to finish off, can I get you to read a little bit of the last Absolutely, time I, I would love to. I think that... Um... Yeah, maybe, I don't know, maybe I should just start at the beginning. That's always a way to go. All right. Dear Mrs. Haven, this morning at 8.47 EST, I woke up to find myself excused from time. I can picture you perfectly reading this letter. You'll be telling yourself I've gone stupid with grief or that I've lost my mind, but my thinking has never been clearer. Believe me, Mrs. Haven, when I tell you that this is no joke. Time moves freely around me gurgling like a whirlpool, fluxing like a quantum field, spinning like a galaxy around its focal hub. At the hub, however, everything is quiet. Is there a chance, no matter how infinitesimal, that you'll find and read this manuscript one day? If I didn't think so, I could never keep on. And if I don't keep on, I'll disappear completely. A physicist might term this place a singularity, a point in space-time where the laws of the cosmos have snapped, but it's like no singularity I've ever heard of. As you know very well, the only type of singularity permitted by physics is a point of infinite density and weight, ripping everything, even light itself, out of the continuum in which time exists. A black hole, in other words, which should have torn me limb from limb by now. But this place is no black hole, I'm sure of that. It's comfortable, first of all. An armchair, a card table, a half-empty bottle of Foster's lager, a ream of stationery, and a refillable tortoise-shell pen, the kind you see in duty-free catalogs, on airplanes, but would never dream of actually buying. It also happens to be a place I know well, the library of my deceased aunt's apartment on 109th Street and 5th Avenue, on the fourth floor of a crumbling brownstone, with the improbable name of the General Lee up at the middle income end of Central Park. You never came here, Mrs. Haven, because my aunt stopped receiving visitors during the Nixon administration. But I want to make sure you can see this place clearly. Cramped though it is, it's my entire world. If God had commanded Noah to build an ark for consumer goods instead of animals, and if Noah had been a drunken paranoiac, his ark might have resembled this apartment. The room I'm in is 20 by 30, cavernous by Harlem standards. Its floors are parquet, its bay windows gothic, its ceiling age-buckled and brown. I have a watery memory from childhood of powder-blue walls, but from where I sit there's no sure way of telling. That's because, aside from a bell-shaped perimeter surrounding this chair, every cubic inch of this apartment is taken up by shoe boxes, newspapers, styrofoam peanuts, cinder blocks, dressmakers dummies, game boys, PA systems, doll houses, harlequin romances, collectible plates, chandeliers, sawhorses, carburetors, bicycles, almanacs, humidors, assault rifles, fainting couches, chalkboards, VHS players, Betamax players, laser disc players, frisbees, ziggurats of balding tennis balls, half a century's worth of popular mechanics, 
Omni, The Wall Street Journal, Amazing Stories, Scientific American, Barely Legal, Jugs, Modern Internment Magazine, Mail Order Catalogs, College Yearbooks, High School Yearbooks, Product Manuals for Discontinued Products, and every other sort of flotsam you can think of. Not to mention clocks, needless to say, this being Tolliver property. Chronometers of every make and model, pendulums primed, springs oiled and wound, circuitry buzzing, charting Spanish Harlem's progress through the so-called fourth dimension with a constancy that makes me want to cry. I'm not sure how much you heard about my aunt's demise. The papers were full of it for a while, especially the tabloids, but it was not a dignified passing. They had trouble letting go of things, Mrs. Haven. I've been told that it runs in the family. I can't see much in my current position, but I'm not too far from the windows, and if I crane my neck to look past a cracked, lucite bust of J.W. Dunn, I can make out a light-speckled sliver of park. For an hour a day, the view has the patina of a retouched picture postcard. The willow boughs sigh, the asphalt promenades gloam, and Nutter's battery and the old wooden boathouse hum with a mystery they could never aspire to at noon. Right now, for example, the evening sun is setting across Harlem Mere, glimmering up from the pond scum, giving a pair of overweight maintenance workers the look of lovers in a cheap romantic comedy. The universe is still in motion, close enough to take hold of, patiently awaiting my return, but the clock at my elbow, a Tolliver magnetic chronometer, model 8 Omega, accurate to point zero 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 one seven eight of a second, remains frozen, Miss Havisham-like, at 8.47 Eastern Standard Time. So many forces had to conspire for our paths through the chronosphere to intersect, Mrs. Haven, let alone for us to share a bed. Isn't that a great and terrifying notion? If the past of a given event, let's call it Event X, might be considered as all things that can influence X, as mainstream physicists claim, then the whole of human history could be thought of as the past of our affair. You've decided, under the influence of God knows what toxic cocktail of fear and regret, to deny the events of the last seven months. But I believe, I have no choice but to believe, that if I bear witness to our history, you'll consent to raise it back up from the grave. I can picture you shaking your head as you read this, your magnificent corkscrew-curled head with its translucent ears. You've ordered me, in no uncertain terms, to obliterate all traces of our friendship. I've received clear instructions, in writing, to cease and desist. I don't blame you for that. We were given three shots, after all, far more than we deserved, and we bungled each one. Our last and bravest attempt ended on the morning of August 14, between 8.17 and 11.47 CET, in the honeymoon suite of the Hotel Zrada, in that fatal little town in Moravia, whose name I choose not to recall. We'd slept with our clothes on, a full arm's length apart, a first in all our secret life together. You'd informed me that you'd struggled all night to come to a decision, your coppery hair stuck straight out on one side, I remember, as though pointing the way out the door. I noticed a minor constellation of freckles under your left clavicle. 
a faint Pleiades-like clustering I didn't recognize, and wondered whether your recent safari in Mr. Haven's company might have brought it to the surface of your skin. A vision came to me then of you riding naked on a Bengal tiger, leading a winding file of porters through the khaki-colored bush. I tried to make a joke about it, but instead let out a strangled chirp, like a deaf child attempting to speak. You took no notice, Mrs. Haven, because you were making a speech of your own. I watched your beautiful lips move, unable to follow. Something momentous was happening. That much was obvious. But my conscious mind refused to let it in. I thought of something you'd said on our first day together, coming out of the Ziegfeld Theater after seeing some by-the-algorithm Hollywood romance. There ought to be a word for this feeling, Walter, you said. What feeling is that? The one when you come out of a movie, in the daytime especially, and everything still feels like part of it. The ancient Greeks called it euphasia, I said, inventing a word off the top of my head. Aren't you the bright penny, you laughed, then asked me to spell it for you, which I did. I could do no wrong that perfect afternoon. Euphasia, you said thoughtfully. I'll make a note of that. My memory of our last hours has gone nova since then, grown so bloated and bright that it's all I can see, though I sense, though I know, that glorious things are hidden just behind it. I want to make a pilgrimage back along the causal chain to line up my mistakes in a row for the sake of comparison with those of all my star-crossed ancestors. From the moment we've met, Mrs. Haven, I've felt like an imposter, like the single normally proportioned member of a clan of sideshow geeks, desperate to keep his pedigree obscured. That ends as of this writing. I want to explain the Tollivers to you, to take you on a private tour of our shabby little hall of curiosities. But in order to do that properly, I've got to take an axe to the vitrines. I'll have to reckon with my namesake, Valdemar Freiherr von Tula, physicist and fanatic, the black timekeeper of Eschenwaldsass, by testifying to his many crimes at last. I'm writing to bring you back to me, Mrs. Haven. I can't deny that. I want to re-enter the continuum, if for no other reason than because it's the place or the field or the condition in which you exist. And there's only one way to do that, appalling though the prospect is to me. I'm writing to tell you about the lost time accidents. I've been talking to John Ray. We've been talking about his book, The Lost Time Accidents, which is out on the 2nd of June in the UK from Canongate. John, thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you for having me. It's been a great pleasure. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.